Welcome back to Roshcast, episode number 18, the last episode before the in-service. Yeah, this is the final part in our three-part pre-in-service rapid review. Let's get started with OB-GYN. What's the most common cause of maternal mortality during delivery? The most common cause of maternal mortality during delivery is maternal hemorrhage. Hemorrhage can be caused by uterine atony, genital trauma, or retained products. Uterine atony is treated with oxytocin or uterine massage. Genital trauma is treated with pressure or ligation. Retained products require removal of the products to control the hemorrhage. Perfect. Compare the treatments for vaginal candidiasis, BV, and trichomonas. Candidiasis is treated with fluconazole or clotrimazole. BV is treated with metronidazole twice daily for seven days. Lastly, trichomonas is treated with a single dose of metronidazole. Which bacteria typically cause cervicitis and PID, and which antibiotics are used to treat both conditions? Both cervicitis and PID are caused by gonorrhea or chlamydia or both. PID is treated with ceftriaxone 250mg IM once and doxycycline 100mg PO BID for 14 days if the patient is able to tolerate PO. Cervicitis is treated with ceftriaxone and a single dose of 1 gram of azithromycin. Great, and along similar lines, what's Fitzhugh-Curtis syndrome? Fitzhugh-Curtis syndrome is a perihepatitis associated with PID. It's a difficult diagnosis to make, but suspected in sexually active women with right upper quadrant pain. Nice work. Looks like pediatrics is up next. All right, you'll start here. Who gets epiglottitis and what are the treatment priorities? While anyone can get epiglottitis, suspect it more in those with incomplete vaccination. The first priority is airway management, which ideally involves intubation and operating room. The second priority is antibiotics. Ampicillin, sulbactam, or ceftriaxone are often used. And what are the three classic stages of a pertussis infection, and how do we treat it? So the three stages are the catarrhal stage, the paroxysmal stage, and the convalescent stage. And pertussis is treated with the macrolide. Moving from the lungs to the heart, list the five congenital cyanotic heart defects. For the five congenital cyanotic heart defects, remember the numbers one to five. One for truncus arteriosus, in which two vessels join to make one. Two is for transposition of the great vessels, in which the two vessels are switched. Three is for tricuspid atresia. Remember, three for tricuspid. Four is for the four defects of tetralogy of Fallot. Lastly, five is for the five words of total anomalous pulmonary vascular return. Nice job. And can you list the three acyanotic heart lesions? Atrial septal defects, patent ductus arteriosus, and ventricular septal defects are all acyanotic heart lesions, or lesions with left-to-right shunt. Symptomatic children with such lesions typically present with congestive heart failure by six months of life. Speaking of cyanosis, can you define acrocyanosis? Acrocyanosis is a transient blue discoloration of the hands and feet, which can occur when a newborn is cold. Typically, the pulse oximetry reading is normal. Great job. And although we didn't cover too many procedurally related questions in the first 15 episodes, we did discuss ketamine a little bit back in episode number five. So I've got two quick questions for you. What's the most common and what's the most serious adverse reaction to ketamine? Well, the emergence reaction from ketamine is the most common adverse effect. And the most serious adverse reaction is laryngospasm. Laryngospasm should be treated with bag valve mask ventilation. Remember that in addition to using ketamine for procedural sedation, Ketamine can also be used for analgesia in lieu of opiates at a dose of 0.1 to 0.3 milligrams per kilogram. Nice. Next up is renal. Why don't you get that going? Let's review the hematuria associations. There are two easy ones to remember here. Hematuria and hearing loss, and then there's hematuria and hemoptysis. So hematuria with hearing loss is associated with Alport syndrome. 
hematuria and hemoptysis is associated with good pasture syndrome. Excellent. And what's Winter's formula and how is that used? Winter's formula is a formula to determine if there is appropriate respiratory compensation in a metabolic acidosis. The formula states that the PCO2 should be 1.5 times the bicarbonate plus 8 plus or minus 2 to determine if there's appropriate compensation. What mnemonic do we commonly use for the causes of an anion gap metabolic acidosis? That'd be the classic mud piles mnemonic. Methanol, uremia, DKA, propylene glycol, iron or INH, lactic acidosis, ethylene glycol, and salicylates. Excellent. And what's the mnemonic for the causes of a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis? So that mnemonic's a little bit less common, but for the causes of a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis, remember hard ass. Hyperalimentation, Addison's disease, RTA, diarrhea, acetazolamide, spironolactone, and saline infusion. Nice. Let's move on to pulmonary. Which diagnostic imaging modality has the highest sensitivity for excluding pulmonary embolism? Highest sensitivity for excluding pulmonary embolism is definitely the VQ scan, although we often get CT because it's readily available. While we're talking about PE, what's the most common EKG finding in a patient with a PE? Sinus tachycardia is the most common finding with PEs, but don't forget about the classic S1, Q3, T3 pattern as well. We also discussed that malignancy is the most common cause for SVC syndrome. Can you name the four most common types of malignancy that cause SVC syndrome? Sure. That would be bronchogenic carcinoma, small cell lung cancer, squamous cell lung cancer, and lastly, lymphoma. Great. How long should you observe a drowning victim who presents with normal vital signs and a normal exam? And how does that change if their pulmonary exam is abnormal? Well, a four to six hour observation period is typically sufficient before discharge if the patient has normal vitals and a normal exam throughout their stay. Any oxygen requirement or pulmonary finding requires admission. All right, let's review hypoxemia. In addition to low inspired O2, what are the four categories of hypoxemia? So that would be shunt, diffusion impairment, hypoventilation, and VQ mismatch. Great. And is the AA gradient normal or increased in each of those? With right-to-left shunt, diffusion impairment, and VQ mismatches, the AA gradient is increased, whereas with hypoventilation, the AA gradient is normal. And with each of the four causes of hypoxemia, does the hypoxemia improve with supplemental oxygen? The hypoxemia of right-to-left shunt does not improve with supplemental O2, but with diffusion impairment, hypoventilation, and VQ mismatches, it would improve. What's the most common cause of secondary spontaneous pneumothoraces? COPD accounts for 70% of the cases of secondary spontaneous pneumothoraces. Remember that the incidence is also three times greater in men than it is in women. All right, last pulmonology question here. If you're assessing a dyspneic patient, how can you use a BNP to narrow your diagnosis? Well, in the last episode, we discussed that a BNP of less than 100 essentially rules out heart failure, but an elevated BNP is not necessarily indicative of failure. Obesity can also lead to a spuriously low BNP. Nice. Well, that wraps up pulmonology. Why don't you start us off with some toxicology? Sure. At what lithium level is emergent dialysis required? Emergent dialysis is required for an acute ingestion with a lithium level greater than 4 milliequivalents per liter, or for a chronic ingestion with a lithium level greater than 2.5 milliequivalents per liter. Emergent dialysis should also be initiated if there are any neurologic findings secondary to the ingestion. And what three EKG changes would you see in a lithium overdose? In a lithium overdose, look out for bradycardia, T-wave flattening, and QT prolongation. All right, next overdose. 
How would you treat a patient who presents with an amphetamine overdose? For this, treatment is mostly supportive. Complex tachydysrhythmias are treated with sodium bicarbonate, agitation is treated with benzodiazepines, and hyperthermia is treated with aggressive cooling measures. All right, now we're moving on to toxidromes. What symptoms would you expect in an anticholinergic toxidrome? Anticholinergic toxicity can be remembered by the mnemonic mad as a hatter, blind as a bat, red as a beet, hot as a hair, and dry as a bone. Don't confuse the anticholinergic toxicity with the sympathomimetic toxicity. They're similar, but in sympathomimetic toxicity, you'll often see diaphoresis and not dryness. All right, and that's an easy follow-up to that one. What are the symptoms of cholinergic toxicity? Cholinergic toxidrome is marked by salivation, lacrimation, urination, defecation, GI upset, and emesis. Remember sludge. Again, that's salivation, lacrimation, urination, defecation, GI upset, and emesis. The most deadly symptoms can be remembered by the killer bees, bronchorrhea, bronchospasm, and bradycardia. Great mnemonics. And we'll continue on to some less common poisonings here. What x-ray finding is classically associated with lead poisoning, and how do you treat an acute lead overdose? A knee x-ray with hyperdense lines of the metaphysis is a classic finding in lead poisoning. Lead poisoning is treated with either succimer or IV EDTA in acute overdoses. And while we're talking about antidotes, what's the antidote or treatment for the following three toxicities? Bupivacaine, hydrofluoric acid, and benzodiazepine overdose. Bupivacaine toxicity is treated with intralipid. Hydrofluoric acid is treated with calcium gluconate, either topically or intraarterially. And benzodiazepine overdoses should be treated with flumazenil, but use it in caution in those who use them chronically as reversal may precipitate seizures. Great. And what's the treatment for an iron overdose, and at what level do you initiate treatment? Iron overdoses occur with ingestions of greater than 40 mg per kilogram. They should be treated with deferoxamine. For less significant overdoses, GI decontamination can be attempted. Charcoal is not of much use here since it doesn't bind iron. And last overdose, how are colchicine overdoses managed? Symptomatic colchicine overdoses must be admitted because of an elevated risk of sudden cardiac death. Other complications include renal failure, rhabdomyolysis, bone marrow suppression, and ARDS. All right, and the last tox topic for the day is on the amanita mushroom, which produces the deadly amatoxin. How can you identify an amanita mushroom? Amanita mushrooms can be identified by dots or scales on their cap. And what's the mortality of amatoxin ingestion and how can we treat it? Amatoxin poisoning leads to four stages of symptoms culminating in liver failure and then death. Mortality is commonly cited as 10 to 30%. Activated charcoal and hemoperfusion should be considered. All right, so that's it for toxicology. We're on to our last topic of the day, trauma. How can a pneumothorax be identified on bedside ultrasound? Well, the absence of lung sliding on bedside ultrasound is indicative of a pneumothorax. Although not related to trauma, don't forget that we discussed A-lines and B-lines. A-lines are horizontal lines that are the normal reflection of the pleura seen in a healthy lung. B-lines are vertical, quote-unquote, headlights that are indicative of pulmonary edema. Perfect. Back to pneumothoraces. How is a simple pneumothorax treated? Well, a simple pneumothorax is one involving less than 10% of the hemithorax and should be treated with a non-rebreather to increase the speed of resorption. With larger pneumothoraces, a chest tube or pigtail catheter will likely be needed. What is the nexus criteria and what is the criteria used for? Well, the nexus criteria can be remembered by the mnemonic NSAID. N for neurodeficit, S for spinal tenderness, A for altered mental status, I for intoxication, and D for distracting injury. Both the nexus and Canadian C-spine rules are tools to rule out patients for the need for imaging. 
They both have nearly 100% sensitivity, but very, very poor specificities and therefore cannot rule in injuries. So if any of the NSAID items are met, the patient requires imaging. Nice. And the last question of the day, what is the most common finding for a myocardial contusion and how should such injuries be evaluated? Myocardial contusions are the sequela of blunt chest trauma. The most common EKG finding is sinus tachycardia. These patients require an echocardiogram for definitive diagnosis. The most common course is spontaneous resorption and resolution of the symptoms. And the most serious complication is delayed rupture. So that's it for episode 18 and for our three-part pre-in-service rapid review. We'll be ticking next week off for the in-service and then resume shortly thereafter with new episodes at a more relaxed pace. Thanks for listening and good luck on the exam from all of us here at the Roshcast team. And remember that in addition to using... Remember that in addition to using ketamine for procedural sedation, ketamine can also be used for analgesia in lieu of opiates at a dose...